Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here. I was, uh, that was, that was my son. Uh, we've got children in the meeting this morning, and that always means noises and kids crying and kids fighting, and that is okay. If your children are fighting or crying, don't worry about it. Maybe the fighting part, you might want to do something about that, but the crying part, don't feel bad. Uh, it's, think of this as a family get-together. We celebrate the Lord, and we enjoy time together, and whenever we get families together and there's little kids, someone's always crying or complaining or something, so please don't feel bad. Don't be embarrassed. Uh, it's just part of uh, doing family life together. So, um, so we're glad to have the kids in this morning. Um, it gives the, uh, the children's ministry workers a break and give them a chance to sit in on the service. So, uh, so we have that this morning. I also want to say this. We, we gave an offering a few weeks ago for Nepal, the earthquake that, that hit Nepal. And I shared that email that we, that we got back from um, from Paul Michaels, who was in Nepal at the time of the, of the earthquake. He's back in the States now, but he was able to communicate back to me. I talked to him on the phone this week, and he said through the, the giving that we were able to, to contribute to what was going on over there from the churches in our area, we were able to help 1,320 families with food and shelter and mercy. So I just think that's phenomenal. I mean, that's a lot of people who we, by our little giving, we're able to, to bless. And it, sometimes it feels like an overwhelming um, number of, of just millions of people affected by this earthquake. But by God's grace, we were able to help a few of them and reach them with the hope of Jesus Christ and uh, the care and love of Jesus Christ for them. So praise God for that. It's, it's, it's great news. I want to just pray as we start this morning. I'm going to share for just a few minutes and then uh, I've invited Chip Bevan up here to share his testimony with us. So we're going to hear uh, Chip's testimony. But I just want to pray. Um, we have some friends of ours visiting here this morning from um, Fair Meadow uh, Church. And so we're just going to just, we're going to pray and ask God's blessing on the word. And we're going to also pray for uh, Fair Meadow Church. So Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gift of your word. God, thank you so much that we are able to open your word this morning and God, we come with expectation, God, that you are going to speak, Lord, that you are going to impart to us your holy word, Lord, your truth, your transformational word, and God, so we surrender and submit ourselves to you this morning, God, we place ourselves under your word, and we, we ask, God, that you would change and transform us to be more like you, so God, we pray, help us to remove distractions, help us to have patience with the children, and everything going on around us, God, and I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes upon you. God, we pray for Fair Meadow Church as well this morning. God, bless them. God, as your word is being proclaimed there this morning, God, we pray for uh, your word to be blessed and honored in that place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I, was, uh, I went to the drive-thru at Panera Bread. And in the drive-thru at Panera Bread, I placed my order. I was getting something from Michelle. So I place my order, and as I proceed to go, to go around in the, in the line there, I realize I don't have my wallet on me. 
Now, how many of you have done that before, right? Everyone's done that before, so what do you do when that happens? You drive off, right? As fast as you possibly can, you get out of that line and you get out of there. I mean, that's just what you do. What, what else are you going to, you can't get to the window and say, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I don't have any money. Uh, will you forgive me? Or, you know, I mean, it's just, that wouldn't make any sense. So, you, you know, drive off. But here's the problem. At the Panera Bread here in Munster, there's, it's one lane. You can't leave. And so I've got a decision to make. Do I just kind of roll up to the window with my, with my window up and just pretend like I don't see the person? Just kind of like, yeah, don't worry. I've forgotten what I've come here for and what's going on here. Or do I stop and, hey, look, I'm so sorry. I don't have any money. This is embarrassing. So I opted for the, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to roll my window down and explain myself because it would be really awkward for me just to drive past like, I don't, <laughs> like I'm just here for the ride or something, right? So... I, uh, I get to the window, and I roll my window down, and I say, I'm so sorry. I have no money, and I ordered all this food, and I, there's no way I could leave, so I'm just, <laughs> I'm just letting you know I'm, I'm leaving. She said, wait, hold on a second. How much change do you have in your car? I said, well, man, I got like a buck or something like that. She's like, okay, give me the dollar. So I gave her the change, and she gave me the food. And I was shocked. I'm like, wow, you don't do this at Panera. It's not like, some, like you're not bartering for... For, you know, it's not like, well, I'll give you a little bit and see what happens. I mean, there's a certain standard you have. I mean, if you went to McDonald's and you were five cents short, you're not getting your food, right? It's just, there's a standard that you have to meet. There's a certain amount of money that you must m- get to in order to purchase your food. Well, she said, just give me all the change you have in your car. So I did. And she gave us, gave us the food, and Michelle was very happy for that. Instead of the, the dumb husband coming home and saying, oh, honey, I forgot my wallet. I'm so sorry. But um, I th- as I thought about that, I thought that is a picture of grace, right? Giving me what I did not deserve. It wasn't even close. It wasn't like I was off by a quarter or even a dollar. I was off by dollars. I mean, I was like 90% of the way not there, all right? And I thought it's a picture of grace, giving me what I did not deserve, what I could not pay for, what I was unable to attain in my own self or with my own money, she lavishly gave me the food. As we turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2, we encounter in Ephesians chapter 2 one of the most marvelous descriptions of our salvation as we encounter in all of Scripture. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, we begin to see the outworking of what God has done in Jesus Christ in the lavish, unbelievable grace that we have in Him. There is a grace available to us through Jesus Christ that is unbelievable. And as we contrast, we're going to look at the first 10 verses in Ephesians, and then I'll, I'm going to sit down and have, have Chip come up. But as we encounter the place where we were prior to Jesus Christ and all that God has done through Jesus Christ and through Him in us, we encounter a picture of grace that is marvelous and glorious and majestic. So this is what we read in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read the first three verses. And it starts off pretty bleak. It really doesn't get much worse than this, okay? 
It says this, and you, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were dead. We weren't neutral. We were dead. And once you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, he's talking about Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so in the first three verses, we, he starts off by saying, you, right? You were dead. You, you weren't alive. There is no life in you. And then he ends these three verses by saying, all. So he's not just talking about a specific person in this. He's talking about us as humanity in general, that we were all dead in our sins. We were all dead in our trespasses. And it wasn't just that we were, like I said, neutral towards God. It's as if it says we were actively running away from the Lord. We're actively engaged. We're actively following and pursuing the works and ways of Satan. As hard as that is to believe, I know sometimes we think there are people in our lives, we think, man, these are pretty, they may not be Christians, but they're pretty good people. And we think, well, they would make a pretty good Christian person. I mean, they do nice things. They're considerate of other people. And in our minds, we think, well, they would make a pretty good Christian. But as the Apostle Paul begins to write to the church in Ephesus, he begins to describe the way that we were prior to our encounter with Jesus Christ. He says, we all, all of us, were completely dead and unable to, to, to come to God on our own. He says, you know what? And what happened is we are following, we're pursuing the ways of Satan. I took my kids fishing uh, on Friday. And our kids love to fish. I love to fish. And as we're fishing for a little bluegill, this little pan fish, one of the things you have to do to, in order to catch the bluegill is you have to know when to set the hook. And so as soon as, as, soon as that, that bait's taken, you can't just whip, rip this thing out of the water. You've got to wait until it, it kind of it takes the hook in, and as soon as you wait just long enough, you, you give it a little pull back on the pole, and you've got the, got the fish. In the same way, we were pursuing, and that hook was set in each one of us. That hook was set. We were trapped. We were dead. There was no, there was no way for us to get out of this situation on our own. And that's exactly what Paul's saying in this. And because of that, because of that, if you can look in this, in, in, in verse 3, if you can see this, we were under God's wrath and judgment because of it. We were under God's wrath because of our willing disobedience to God's ways, all of us. We were under God's wrath and judgment. It's not a pretty picture. Because we actively followed Satan, disregarding God, disobeying God, pursuing the things that displeased the Lord, we were under his wrath and judgment. That's what he says where all of us were. Now, let's look at verse 4. And this is where everything changes. Verse 4, I mean, verses 4 through 10. But God. So in the midst of all of our pursuing, pursuing rebellion and pursuing the passions of our own flesh, following Satan in the midst of all that, in the midst of our, our deadness, we read this, but God, 
but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, this has inspired the fact of us doing a bunch of really good stuff to earn God's favor or blessing in our lives. In spite of the fact that, that we were all dead, that we were following Satan, he says, in spite of all of that, God in his rich mercy and his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is amazing grace. This is unbelievable mercy. Look at the way that it describes it. We just read in verses 1 through 3, and we saw this. We were under God's wrath and judgment because we have disobeyed the Lord at every turn in the way. And then we get to verse 4, and he says, But God, rich in mercy, the great love with which he loved us, we were dead, but he has made us alive in Christ Jesus. This is good news for us. This week, I had the privilege of visiting a gentleman who was on his deathbed, literally. He was in hospice care, and he, he had maybe, he has maybe days, hours we didn't know at the time. I had a chance to visit him. I never met him before, and I went to his home. And I had the opportunity to share the gospel with him. And so I, as we were sitting down together, he's in his bed. His body is completely riddled with cancer. There's no hope for him to recover. We don't know if he's got days or hours left. I shared the good news of Jesus Christ with him. And at the end of that, at the end of me just reading from the scriptures with him and talking about Jesus, he says, but I want proof. And I said, I mean, that's, that's an honest question. He wants proof. And I said, the proof that you have is that someone you have never met is visiting you on your deathbed, telling you about the good news of Jesus Christ and what you need to do to respond to him. I said, I, I don't know what other proof that you have that God loves you? God loves you so much that at the very, you may have hours left to live and he would send someone that you've never met to go into your home to tell you about Jesus Christ because he loves you that much. And that is, I don't, I mean, most people never get that opportunity. If you die suddenly in a car accident or something else, you don't have that opportunity for someone to come alongside your bed 
while you were dying and have to tell you about Jesus Christ. I thought it's the grace of God that he would reach out to people who were dead, who were dying, and give them the good news of Jesus Christ. That is what God has done for each one of us. We were on our deathbed. There was no hope for us. We were riddled with sin. And God sent Jesus Christ to die in our place, to take our sin upon His body, take our cancer, our brokenness, our rebellion upon His body, that we may be forgiven, that we may be set free, that we may know the goodness and the grace of Almighty God. That is how He has lavished His mercy upon us. Now I could share story upon story upon story of what this looks like, but I would like to just invite Chip Bevan up to share his testimony. Because Chip's testimony is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 in real life. It is, it is the visible demonstration of what Almighty God has done for each one of us in his life. And so can we just welcome Chip up? Good morning. Um, can we pray before we start? Father, we just come before you this morning, and we thank you, Lord, that you are here with us today, that you love us so much. And we thank you for your grace and mercy that has been availed to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I ask right now as I share the words of my testimony that you've done in my life, that these words would go into the hearts and lives of everyone here today, and it would be anointed by your Spirit and would reach out and touch us where we live. Bless this word we ask now, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. But he's also given us the ministry of reconciliation. It also says in the word of God that we overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. About 13 years ago, I was driving down the road one day, and I felt a tug by the Holy Spirit in my heart that it was time to share my story. Now, this is a story that I kind of kept hidden most of my life and didn't share with hardly anyone. Few people in my inner circle, my family and friends knew about it. The vast majority of people did not know. But because the Lord was really laying it on my heart, he, he, he prompted me to go ahead and, and, and write a book and, and share my story, which I give away freely. I have been ever since as my testimony. And I will offer some in the back. If you want one, just take one to read it. But it all began when I was a young man. And I, much like everyone here, I grew up in a church. Maybe not like everybody here. I grew up in a church. I was raised in a Christian home. I had Christian parents. And I was the epitome of the all-American kid. I was a good athlete. I had uh, music talents. Uh, I wrestled, played baseball. I was popular. My dad was an elder in the church for 25, 30 years. And I had this image of just being the perfect life. But what everybody didn't know at the time is I was wearing a mask. 
And behind that mass, there was another whole kid in there that was going through a different life. Because from as early as I can remember, the earliest years of my memory, I had been sexually abused. And the reason that's important is because it helped to shape what happened in my life and who I became. For about 10 years of my life, or let's say until about 9 or 10, I was sexually abused by an older boy in the church, close friends, family. I don't blame him. I think he was probably being sexually abused by somebody else, and it was just a carryover. But what happened was I was ashamed, I felt insecure, and I felt embarrassed, and I lived a lie. There was a lie inside of me that prompted me that I was on a mission to prove how crazy and wild, how manly I could be. And it also created within me this evil, lying nature that became personified. And about age 11, I kind of broke away from it. I, got, I, I gave my life to the Lord. I, I went through a, there was a messianic a missionary who came to our church. He talked about the, the last days. And I remember distinctly, I walked down the aisle. I had tears in my eyes. I wanted to be born again. I'd been raised in the church. I, and I, and I was sincere, but at the time, I didn't understand grace. What I did was I tried to put myself under the, the law of legalism. I tried to somehow, now that I wanted to serve God, I tried to prove how I could be a Christian. I tried to earn my way. I tried to be righteous. And, of course, we can't do that. So even though I had a heart and a want and a longing and a yearning to serve God, I approached it through a legalistic approach of the law. Now, our law was don't go, to, don't go to dances, don't play cars, don't go to movies. It wasn't the Torah, but it was the same concept. It was a legalistic approach to Jesus, and it didn't go anywhere. And by the time I got off into college, I had a full scholarship at Indiana State University. I went up to college, and I was there, and this is back in the late, mid, late 60s, just when the Cultural Revolution was starting. And inside of me, I had this wanderlust spirit and I, I, I just had this insecurity. I had to prove how manly and crazy and wild I was. And I heard about fraternities. And I decided I was going to go ahead and pledge a fraternity. So I joined a, a fraternity at Indiana State University and got into binge drinking and partying and, and, and just went crazy. That was my first time. I really just dove off the deep end. And I didn't even make it through a semester, and I realized this was not for me. I, I, I just wanted to go travel the world. I wanted to go see what life had to bring. And so I dropped out of college, and I joined the service. And I went into military intelligence. And in military intelligence, I went to uh, intelligence school. And from there, I went to Vietnamese language school. And I was literally brainwashed in Vietnamese language for a year. I was put in a small room with 13 people. We were no windows. We were not allowed to speak English. And they brainwashed us for 13, for 12 months. Uh, nearly went insane. And then we were living in Juarez, on the Juarez border in El Paso. So every free moment we had when we weren't in Vietnamese language school, we were over in Mexico getting drunk and partying. And, 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 and we're, so we're hearing Spanish in the evenings and Vietnamese in the daytime. I didn't speak either. And I was going crazy. And I was about uh, 18, 19 years old. I did get out of that school. I was able to speak and read and write Vietnamese fluently by the time I got out of there because it does work. And I went off to Vietnam at age 20. This is during the Tet Offensives, during the the raging part of the war. I was assigned to the 7th Air Mobile Assault Division of the Vietnamese. I was assigned to a Green Beret advisor team, and I was a tear gator. I was an interrogator and an interpreter, and I was in combat for 13 months. During those 13 months, I 
started to realize, number one, that we weren't even trying to win the war. I had fallen in love with the Vietnamese people because I spoke their language fluently. I was living with them. I was traveling with them. We'd go on a search and destroy mission to be a Green Beret officer myself, and it'd be an entire battalion of Vietnamese. So I, I really fell in love with them, and I knew that eventually the time was going to come when the war was going to come to an end. These people were going to be either imprisoned or executed because we were going to betray them. I knew this back in, in 1968, 69. It was clear and obvious back then to us, maybe because I was in military intelligence and maybe I had a little bit more of a view of what was going on, but it was clear. And I had a lot of anger and a lot of hate and a lot of hostility. In Vietnam, I first got turned on to marijuana. I started getting high, getting stoned. I said in my particular situation... Can't speak for everybody in Vietnam. In my situation, everybody I knew either got drunk, got stoned, some kind of way of getting high any free moment they had. Well, I chose marijuana because I could function better than I could being drunk. So I started getting stoned, and then I took my first LSD trip in Vietnam. Don't ask me why, but I did. And then I started doing opium in Vietnam, and I got addicted to opium in Vietnam during the same time period. By the time I came out of Vietnam, I was a shell of a man. I had anger and hostility in my heart. I was as far away from God as you could possibly be. But I did have godly parents, and they were praying for me. Thank God for godly parents, okay? And if you're a godly parent, pray for your kids. And never give up on anybody, anybody. Never give up because God's grace is so great. I came home from Vietnam, and of course, I, 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 would look, I was about 112 pounds. I looked like death warmed over. My teeth were black, and I, I was a mess. And I got discharged in 12 hours from the time I hit California. I was a civilian on the States. I mean, it was insane. I got home. I didn't know anybody. Back in the 60s, I didn't know where to get marijuana. I didn't know where to get drugs. I was, I was living in Indiana, and, and you know, and I didn't know. So I started drinking again, started getting drunk. And, and, and then once again, I, I got into a bar fight. I went crazy, and, and then that, that's when I kind of stepped back and realized that there was something wrong. I had, I had a pretty bad case of post-traumatic stress disorder. I was pretty hostile, pretty crazy, pretty off the edge, and decided. To, so I decided I tried to go ahead and give my life back to God. I figured, you know, why not? Let's try it again. And so again, but again, I was trying to, okay, now what can I do? So I, I went to the Bill Gothard Institute, and I, and I, and I went, met with Bill Gothard. And I, and I don't mean this in a bad way or wrong way. I'm just saying this is how I took it. And I met with him. I said, Bill, what, I, I, how do I change? He said, well, go cut your hair. Well, that was just, it was a wrong answer for me at the time because it was just putting me back under that legalistic thing of what to do. In other words, if I would cut my hair, I'd be a good Christian. If I would just do this again, I, I, so I tried to go back under the law of reaching out to God and earning God, but I couldn't. And the next thing I know, because there was no word in me, the Bible says, Jesus said, Father, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. It's the word of God that sanctifies us. You can't be sanctified without the word of God. I didn't have the word of God in my heart. All I had was religious knowledge and and a desire, but I had no, no substance in my being that could change and transform me. And so once again, before you knew it, I went, I said, I'm gonna go back to school on the GI Bill. So I went to Valparaiso University and went back to school there. Next thing I know, I tried, I will go do a fraternity again, make some friends, because this is back when, the, you know, you didn't even want to tell anybody you're a Vietnam veteran back in 1968, 69. They spit on you, they jeer you, they call you a kid killer. So you just kind of tried to blend in. And there were a lot of demonstrations going on back then. So I, tried, I thought I'll join a fraternity because I didn't have any friends. I just didn't seem to, well, that took me back into drugs again. And the next thing I know, I spiraled back into even worse than I ever was. And I ended up getting a group of a bunch of us. We ended up setting up a drug distribution center. We had a farm out in Nebraska where we were 
you know, harvesting marijuana out in Nebraska. We were selling it to Canada. We were bringing marijuana in from Mexico. We were getting LSD from the Rainbow's People Party in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I was involved, deeply involved in, in drug distribution and, and drug dealing. And, and, and I got into the hippie movement. I dropped out of society. And that went on for many years, many years. But again, I still had my parents who loved me, and I had people still praying for me. They never gave up on me, and God kept reaching out to me. And so during this time period, the first time that I had a radical moment was um, I came home one day, and I heard that two of my major contacts had been busted, and we had a, there was a big raid going on, and I noticed two guys were following me, so I slipped them. I ran home. I grabbed all the drug and stash I had at the time I was married. I, and uh, I took everything, and I, I, I told my wife, I said, J- and this, just stay here. I'm, I'm taking off. And I had another guy who had been living with us. We had a kind of a communal living arrangement there. Every bunch of us were living, coming and going. And I had picked this guy up from hitchhiking out of Canada about, oh, maybe a few weeks earlier. He had been in prison. He was on his way to Canada, and he was kind of crazy as I was, and he kind of fit in. And so he went with me, and we took off to our farm in Nebraska. And we were driving down the road, and we were going for quite a while, and we picked up another hitchhiker. And this guy got in the back seat. I was in a Pinto. And uh, we stopped in a coffee shop, and I remember we sat there, and this guy, the other guy, he didn't say anything. He, just had, a, he had an army field jacket on, he had a hoodie, he just sat there, he had a long beard, looked like the zigzag man, if you know what I'm talking about, off of marijuana rolling wrapping papers. He just, you know, that's what he looked like, and he, but he never said a word. We got back in, and of course, we're, we're stoned, because at this point, I live stoned. I'd wake up, the first thing I'd do is get stoned. I stayed stoned until I went to bed at night, and I was either doing really heavy-duty marijuana constantly, plus mescaline, LSD, whatever, I might get cocaine, whatever. So I was ripped, and we were driving, and I was driving. Oh, about four in the morning, I fell asleep at the wheel. And I, I looked up just in time to see a bridge embankment that was over going over another expressway. And I was driving a pinnacle with a stick ship, and I put my foot to the clutch, and I turned my wheel, and my front wind tire hit the bridge. And the whole front end came into my legs, and the car started tumbling down the road, and the roof came into my head. And I heard the guy on the right side screaming and cursing God, heard nothing out of the back, and, and I was just holding on for dear life because it was just a, the metal was screaming and rolling and crushing, and I was just waiting to die. And, and it came to a stop. We were four in the morning out in the middle of nowhere, and I, I asked the guy, and I said, are you okay? He says, yeah. He said, I said, well, my leg's crushed. It's like a bag of marbles. And I said, I know I'm bleeding from my head. I said, how about the guy in the back? When we looked over, he was gone. He, he had absolutely disappeared. And the Bible says sometimes when you entertain strangers, you entertain angels unawares. And I'm convinced to this day that was an angel of God, that God came and he spared my life. Now, don't ask me why. Because I don't know. I don't know why God spared my life, okay? I've been struggling with that for all these years. But he did. He spared my life. Well, I do know some reason. I'll share that later. But, but still, I don't know. And... And when I got out of the hospital, well, let me tell you about the hospital a second. What's really unique, I don't know about you guys, I've never seen a hospital ever in my entire life, before or after, where you're foot to foot with somebody. Side by side, but never foot to foot looking at each other, right? I get in this hospital room, there's a guy looking at me, and, and he's a Baptist minister. And he's been in there for three days trying to go home, and they won't let him go home, and they're trying to test and what was wrong with him. Well, he was there because God had him there to minister to me. And so he started sharing with me. And, you know, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that was the first time I started to understand the fear of God. There was a fear that I didn't know before of God. I mean, I was crazy. I wasn't afraid of anything. 
But that moment, I was afraid of God. But I also wanted to know the truth. Because one thing I did know from growing up as a Christian home is that the truth would set me free. I didn't want to hear what men had to say. I didn't want to hear what religion had to say. I wanted to know what the Word of God had to say. So I went out and bought me a Bible. And I put it in my back pocket, a little Bible, carried it. And I went on a mission for truth. And I spent the next several years reading that book cover to cover over and over and over again. But I had one mistake. I was still, I was still high. I still had one foot in hell. I was, I mean, I'd get stoned and I'd read the Bible. I'd trip on LSD and I'd read the Bible. And I, you know, I was just, that's what I was. I mean, I had a joint in one hand, the Bible in the other hand, and I was on a mission for truth, enlightenment. Well, I was, I was partially on the right path, but I was still a long ways from the right path. But God in his infinite grace and mercy kept wooing me and kept wooing me. I got a job at Bethlehem Steel shortly after the car accident, and I was working the basic oxygen furnace for those men that may be aware of the steel mills. It's the closest thing to hell you'll probably ever find on earth as far as I'm concerned. The whole building shakes. The, the ladle of steel is bigger than this room. It's, you're on top. I was doing a job called watering down the hot tops, and that's where you have these ginormous ingots of steel on railroad cars and they pour the, the molten lava steel inside these ingots and you're up on a platform and I've got a fully in, full fire uh, protected gear on with asbestos suit and helmets and gloves and I've got a fire hose and I'm watering this and I'm stoned out of my head right and I'm watering down this hot top and the next thing you know the water gets underneath the molten steel and it erupts like a volcano all over me. It is like this white blazing I, I can't even, it's the most most intense heat you can you can imagine. And it just came out from nowhere and, and engulfed me. And I just turned and I started running and I hit my ribs on a metal rail and I fell down a flight of steel stairs and it came to the bottom. And the only thing that spared my life, well, besides God, was I didn't take a breath. Because had I taken a breath, my lungs would have been seared from the, the intense heat and I would have scorched my lungs and killed me. They took me to the hospital, checked me out, I had a burnt nose, burnt ear, had a bruise in my rib. Outside of that, I was okay. I got home, took a shower. I lost a third of my hair. Now, I had a ponytail back to the middle of my hair, full beard. I lost a third of my hair because I had little burnt spots all over my hair from the heat on the helmet that had just burnt through my head on my, on my helmet. Once again, God was trying to, to, to get my attention. But I, I wasn't willing to let go of the drugs because I loved, I loved getting stoned. I loved getting high. I loved living in some other alternate reality. I loved it. Bottom line, I just loved it. I wasn't going to give it up. I mean, I'll go on a quest for truth, but don't ask me to give up my drugs. Well, shortly after that, I had a knock on my door one day. The paper boy came, and he says, he said, I just want to let you guys know, uh, the FBI came to my parents' house last night. They want to use our house to surveil you because they're, going to, they're trying to bust you. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Nice to know, you know, we had an entire bedroom as our drying room of marijuana. I had a mar- whole room as big as this, full of marijuana, a foot deep drying, right? I'm thinking, okay, it's time to get out of here. So we took off. We got everything out of there, and we moved into another town and uh, got away from that. And come to find out later, one of my best friends, his name, we called him Indian. He, was a, he had a long, coal black hair, and he was, a, he was an Indian, and he was an FBI agent. And he was my primary contact to selling to Canada, and he was the one that was trying to get us busted. And I didn't know that. I found that out many years later. But um, we got on the Hammond, and, um, of course, I was still dealing. But, and so I ended up, one day I was at home, and by this time I had a son. 
And uh, he was probably maybe 10, 12 months old. I don't remember exactly now. And I got a knock at the door one day. And we had a big drug deal going down that night. And uh, two guys came to the door and they said, our car broke down. Can we, can we use your phone? You know, I'm talking, hey, my phone's your phone. Come on in. I don't care. Next thing I know, they threw a, a sawed-off shotgun in my face, a 45 that barged in. And they had come to execute me. And they came to steal us of all the drugs and all the money we had on us. And um, again, you know, and the reason is because I, I had gone into the outlaws motorcycle gang's turf in dealing drugs. And they were going to put me out of business. And so they, uh, I don't know why, again, I believe it was the grace of God that they didn't execute me because that's what they came to do. They told me they came to do that, but then they decided at the last moment they'd spare me as long as I'd never deal again, and I would just get out of their area. And uh, they tied us up. I remember my son being left in a little swing rocker, and there we were. And I, at that point, I was at the lowest point in my life. I... Um, I just knew that the lifestyle I'd picked, as much as I said I loved getting high and I loved getting, I knew it was killing me. I knew it was going to kill me. And I knew that this lifestyle was just something I had to get away from. And um, that's when I got down on my knees and I said, Lord, I need you. And I, need, I really need you, but I can't do this. I can't be good enough. I can't earn my way to you. And I can't quit not wanting to get stoned. I love it. I said, but you know what? I love, I love you more, and I want what you have. I want what you promise in your word. I want to be set free. I want to be delivered. I want to be this new creature that I read about in your word, but I can't do it. And he says, you don't have to. My grace is sufficient. And I said, Father, here's the deal. <laughs> I'll make you a deal. Let's make a deal, right? I'm making a deal with God. He says, I will do all that I can do, but then you're going to do the rest because I can't do it. I will do what I can do. I'll take the first step. I'll throw away all the rest of the drug paraphernalia. I'll go out and cut my hair. I'll walk away from this lifestyle, but you're going to have to deliver me. You're going to have to set me free because I can't do it. You're going to have to make me a new creature. You're going to have to change my life. It's going to have to be by your grace and your power or it's not going to get done because I can't do it. I've tried it too many times and look where it got me, near death. And so I, I did what I could. I went out, got rid of I cleansed my house of everything. I cut my hair. I... I, I I walked away from the lifestyle of the people I was with, everything. Now, I like to say that there was no cost that I paid, but there was a cost that I paid. It cost me a lot. The Bible says, you follow me, there's a, there's, a, there's a cost to be paid. But I also tell you one thing. The Lord set me free. He delivered me of drug addiction. It wasn't 12 steps, any other steps. It was instant, complete, 100% set me free. He set me free after years and years and years of drug addiction. He, he did a healing of my body over time. I still walk with a limp, and I still have some issues, but if, if you see me then and you see me now, I'm a new creation, man. I am, I am, I've got it going on compared to what I had back then. You know, God has done a work in my life. But you know what? In so many years, I said, Lord, why? Why did you spare me? Why not? You know, there's so many guys that died in Vietnam that I should have died in Vietnam. There's guys that should have been, I should have overdosed. There's so many things. But I can say this today. God is so good. I, I'm here today, and, and, and there was a cost. And, and matter of fact, men, if you come to my house Tuesday night, I'm going to share the next part of this story is about the walk that I took, the journey after I came to the Lord, the walk of sanctification, because that was more difficult than getting to the Lord. I'll share that Tuesday night at my house. But here's the point. Right now, I have 13 of my closest family. I have 
three children. They're all saved. Their mates are saved. They got five grandkids. They love the Lord. My life was, I mean, God is so, so good, so good. And it's because of his grace. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. It's not by works. Just what it says, not by works. We're saved by grace through faith. You can never earn it. You don't keep it by, you know, we've been called to do good deeds. That's what it says in James. Faith without good deeds is dead. But it's not good works of salvation. It's just going out and sharing a cup of cold water and giving a warm handshake and loving a person and giving money when they need it and taking somebody in for shelter. That's the good deeds we've been called to, not the, not the deeds of justification of righteousness. That's what, that was nailed at the cross, and he said, it is finished. It is finished. We're, we are saved by grace through faith, faith through grace. That's it, man. That's it. That's it. That's all it is. And so I encourage you today. Matter of fact, I told Johnny, I, right now I feel there's two things here. I think there's people here today that are struggling with trying to work their salvation out through trying to somehow manipulate and make it and work. And, they're, and they're, they have the inside battle that we don't even see, but you know it. You know you're going, what you're going through right now. You know the areas of sin that are constantly defeating you and constantly beating you down. Well, I want to pray for you today. And I also believe that there are people here who have loved ones that were the same as I was, that are maybe they've walked astray. Might be a brother, a son, a sister, a daughter, a mother, a father, and they seem hopeless. They seem hopeless. That you could never reach them. I want to pray for them today. And so I'm going to ask you to do today, if that's either one of those situations fits you, I want you to stand up right now. I want you to stand up. If there's somebody in your life that you know needs to be set free, or if you need an area of deliverance in your life, I want you to stand up. Praise God. And I'm going to pray right now for you. And I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask God to set and deliver you and or your loved one that you're standing in proxy for right now. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Father, we love you so much. Father, we thank you that you have, you have given the keys of death and hell to Jesus when he rose from the dead, and that all power and authority is given unto him, and he reigns supreme. And right now, Father, there are men and women in this place that have stood up in faith because either they are struggling in some unknown sin or some unknown way that they've been trying to reach out and earn their righteousness, and they need deliverance from that mindset. They need to be set free by the blood of the Lamb and the knowledge that it's by grace that we're saved. And yet, Father, there's others that are standing in proxy for a loved one, someone who seems so far gone, so far lost. And yet, Father, I know there is nobody too far that your love can't reach. There's nobody so lost that your blood can't cover and save. So we're asking, Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, that you would go into the north, south, east, and west, and you would set these people, these captives free in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for that today, and we proclaim it in Jesus' name. As you said, Father, if we agree upon earth touching anything, we would have it done in our father. We know it's your will. We know. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. We know it's the perfect will of the Father. We know it's the perfect will of Jesus. Holy Spirit, touch them right now, and your anointing is the anointing that sets us free. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Maybe see them. Wow, thank you, Chip. That's one of the best sermons ever lived. It's a powerful testimony of what Jesus Christ has done in a life that has been changed. We're going we're gonna to close, and 
just want to encourage anyone, if, if you would like prayer for anything, maybe some of the things that Chip was talking about really resonated with you and, and you would like prayer, uh, Chip will be up here and he'd be happy to pray with you. If you have any questions about his testimony, he'd love to share that as well. It's, it, it's just really a, a picture of God's amazing, amazing grace. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, I'm just going to pray and uh, send us out. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you today, God, for the story of your grace. Jesus, it is because of you. It is all because of you, because of your grace, because your mercy, because your life and death and resurrection, that we can hear Chip's testimony and rejoice. Jesus, you have made a way. So, God, as we go out today, Lord, I pray that we would go out with the, the knowledge and understanding, Jesus, that you are, you are able and powerful and mighty to save. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.